0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the All It Takes is a Goal podcast. The best place in the entire world, including all of Canada, to learn how to build new thoughts, new actions, and new results. I'm your host, John Acuff, and today I'm joined by Marshall Goldsmith. Who's that? I'm, I'm so glad you asked. Over the course of his nearly 40-year career, This world-renowned executive coach and New York Times bestselling author, Marshall Goldsmith, has sold millions of copies of his books and even had the world's top executive coaching award named after him. His coaching has reached more than 200 CEOs and their management teams, and he's had an amazing career of helping really successful people become even more successful. He's written books like Triggers and What Got You Here Won't Get You There, and I would say that What Got You Here Won't Get You There is in my top 10 of all business books. Like top 10. I love that book. I refer to that book regularly. I was thrilled to know he would come on the podcast. I was thrilled to know he lives in Nashville where I live. I think we're going to become pretty good friends and play pickleball at some point. If I if I had to guess, I didn't I didn't mention that um, in the podcast, but you'll hear him. He's like, yeah, let's go on a walk. Like there's so many great walking trails near our houses where we live. And I was like, I'm hundred percent going to do that. He's got a new book coming out called the earned life, lose regret, choose fulfillment. And I can't wait for you to hear this interview. I will tell you at one point during the interview, I say something that Marshall finds me $20 for saying, like I say a word, like a simple word, a three letter word that he goes, oh, no, that's a, that's a $20 fine. So it was a really fun interview. I think you're going to love it. But first, a quick message about the sponsor of today's episode. Today's sponsor is me. I've been really surprised at how many people who listen to this podcast have reached out to me about having me speak at their events. I love that. And here's why. Over the last 13 years, I've had the honor to help hundreds of companies like Nissan, Walmart, Microsoft, and Comedy Central at events around the world. And during that time, I've developed three big goals for your event. Number one, I want to slingshot your audience into the best year they've ever had. Whether I'm opening, closing, or somewhere in the middle of the event, I want to launch everyone out of that room with actionable, memorable things that they can apply to their work and lives immediately. Number two, my second goal, I want the sound team engaged and laughing. The sound team has heard it all. They have. And if I can make them laugh and learn along the way, The audience is going to absolutely love the keynote. And number three, my third goal, I want you to get text messages during the keynote. My favorite sentence to hear from you after I speak is, John, my phone was blowing up during your keynote. I'm there to make you look like a rock star, not me. If your boss texts you during my speech and compliments you on how well the event is going, then I know I've done my job. Whether it's virtual or live, 10,000 people in an arena, or 15 sales team members on WebEx or Zoom or, or Microsoft Teams, I'd love to help you with your next event. Fill out the quick form at acuff.me speaking to check my availability. That's acuff, A-C-U-F-F dot slash speaking. All right, let's jump right into my interview with Marshall Goldsmith. Marshall, I need to start by telling you that recently I had to pay a team member $10 during a meeting. I just had to open up Venmo because I had negatively underestimated what one of our new products was capable of. And I had asked him to hold me accountable to that. And he was brave enough in the meeting to do it. And I did that because you encourage leaders to incentivize the behavior they want to change. I love that principle. And I I think What one of the things I love about your books is that they're a real mix of head and heart, but there's a surprising amount of hands info in them too. And that there's something you can actually do for you in the creative process. How are you taking a big idea you have and then saying, how do I change it? How do you take that big idea from something, you know, that you actually say, okay, somebody
1: can use this on a Tuesday or somebody can use this in a meeting? Well, I I think... I like to translate everything I do into behavior. So let me give you an example of the money one. Now, a big idea is you want to be an open-minded listener. You don't want to be defensive. You want to encourage input and all that. That's all talk. But people then just fall apart when it comes to reality. One thing I teach people is never start a sentence with three words, no, but, or however. So if mm-hmm. I talk to you and the first out of your mouth is no, it's a message, you're wrong. How about but? Disregard everything you just said, it's a terrible Mm -hmm. habit. So I find my clients $20 every time they do that. Now, you might say, well, you know, $20, my clients are mostly rich people. What do they care about $20? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're mostly men. Yeah, they're mostly older. Rich old men don't like to lose money. At all. Yeah. They don't like lose anyone. Watch them play <laughs> golf. They lie, they cheat, they steal, they swear at each other. They hate to lose <laughs> so, money, right? They just hate it. So one guy is stubborn, and I'm going to shoot back report, he's $20, 40 60 80 100 He lost $420 in an hour and a half. At the end of an hour and a half though, he said, thank you. He had no idea. He had no idea. He did it over and over. And he said, no wonder people think I'm stubborn the first thing I do when someone talks to me is I prove I'm right and they're wrong. He got Mm -hmm. so much better just learning not to do that. And, you know, just little things like that can make a huge difference because the problem is all of us have these good theories about the Mm -hmm. person we want to become. But our behavior often does not align with these theories much at all. And we need to learn how our behavior, what we do every day is like that.
0: I feel like one of the things you're really passionate about is introducing people to themselves. Right. So this idea of saying, okay, here's the ideal, here's the reality, what do you want to change about that? When did that process of of kind of approaching interpersonal change start for you?
1: Oh, uh, years ago, I was uh, very young, I was 28, 29 years old, and I, I met a famous guy named Dr. Paul Hersey, who got me started in the business, so I didn't exactly start at the bottom kind of started with my, my clients. Were, my clients were McKinsey and IBM. So, you know, I didn't start at the bottom. And I'm working with the CEO. And he said, I got this kid working for us, young, smart, dedicated, hardworking, driven to achieve, arrogant, know-it-all jerk. He said it would be worth a fortune to me if I could change this guy's behavior. So I pop up a fortune. I like the fortune. Maybe I could help him. He said, I doubt it. I said, oh, I, I think maybe I doubt it. Then I came, I said, I'll work with the guy for a year. If he gets better pay me, then you better. It's all free. You know what he said? Sold. There was nothing called coaching. There was no field called coaching. I just made it up. Well <laughs> that's so great. The guy got
0: better and I got paid. Life is good. Well, so that was a moment where you bet on on your ability. Were you always able to say, okay, like there's a lot of people that hear that story and go, I don't know that I would have trusted that after a year I would have been able to prove it. Do you like to put yourself in positions where you go, I'm gonna bet on Marshall and watch what happens?
1: I have a different view. I actually bet on my clients. Ah, okay. Yeah, okay. Let, me, let me give you an example. The client I coached that improved the most, I spent the least amount of time with, and the client I spent the most amount of time with didn't improve at all and didn't get paid. So I made a chart. On one dimension, it was called time spent with executive coach, Marshall Goldsmith. The other dimension calls improvement. There was a clear negative correlation between spending time with me and getting better. Well, I thought that's a troubling chart. So I go talk to my client who improved the most, uh, it was great to start His name is Alan Mulally. Alan was CEO of the year in the United States, led a complete turnaround of Boeing. He went to Ford. The stock went from $1.01 to 1840, CEO of the year. So I said, Alan, of all the people I coached, you improved the most. You were great to start with, and I spent the least amount of time with you. So I showed Alan my chart. I said, Alan, the way this chart looks, had you never met me, you would really be good. <laughs> So I said, what did I learn from? What should I learn about coaching from you? He said, he taught me a lesson that changed my life a long time ago. You know, he said, you have one, you get one challenge, pick the right customers. You pick the right customer, your coaching process is always going to work. You pick the wrong customer, your coaching process is never going to work. But you know what? That
0: changed my life. One of the questions I had was actually about that quote where you say, I make it easy on myself. I don't play sucker bets. I only work with clients who have an extremely high potential of succeeding. And you mentioned that other people, the people you've worked with, the habitual winners, stack the deck in their favor. So many people, I feel like, get stuck where they're, they're doing the thing the hardest way possible and, and making it almost you know, as difficult as it can be. Is that a form of self-sabotage? Do we feel guilty that it's easy and feels natural? Why don't we do the thing you just described?
1: I, I think one problem I don't have is called the savior complex. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I've learned in my job as an executive coach, my name is Marshall Goldsmith, not Jesus Christ. So I'm right. really not into saving people. If people don't mm-hmm. care, you know what? It's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay they don't care. I'm not here to save everybody. I'm not here to change people who don't want to change. You know, I only work with very successful people that want to want to change. You do a Google search, in quotes, helping successful leaders, in quotes, first 500 hits, 450 are me. Wow, that's amazing. The rest of the world is 50. That's what I do.
0: That that became your focus. So, but you you also do a ton of personal work. I think uh, it feels uh, like uh,
1: uh, you no. Did. But you started. Oh, a-
0: sorry, sorry. You're right. I'll send you twenty dollars. You know, let's it, go.
1: It goes to your favorite charity, Thistle
0: Farms. Just got twenty dollars, and right. now you that go. you live where I live, I'm sure you'll bump into Thistle Farms. That's so good, <laughs> so good. Okay. <laughs> Marshall, I really like that idea. And then an additional idea I like about how you approach life is that one of the things you talk about, especially in your new book, The Earned Life, is that you mention you're world class at forgiving yourself. Right. How did you become world class at that?
1: Well, you know, I've been a Buddhist for a long time. And I'm not a religious mm-hmm. Buddhist. I'm a philosophical Buddhist. So anybody can be a Buddhist like I am, no matter what your religion is. And Buddhism is not big on guilt at all. Mm -hmm. You know, and part of the book I talk about is the every breath paradigm. Every time I take a deep breath, it's a new me. So I think about the previous renditions of me. And you know what? Did they mess up every now and again? Of course. Did they commit a few sins? Of course. So what? Uh, Let go, let go, let go. On the whole, look, on the whole, they gave me a lot of stuff. So what do I say to those previous versions of me? Thank you, previous me's. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you screwed up on occasion, but it's all right. Let it go. So I think the first person we always need to learn to forgive is ourselves.
0: And you've made that an art, it feels like, over the years.
1: Yeah, I have a lot of problems. That is not one of my problems is self-fledged. I'm not, I'm not big on that. <laughs> I,
0: I, I love that. You mentioned in the new book that our default response in life is not to experience meaning or happiness. Our default response is to experience inertia. Right. Why do we have a hard time with happiness, and why do we have an easy
1: time with inertia? We never think of happiness, number one, as discipline, and number two, we never think of happiness as coming from the inside. We think of happiness as coming from the outside. Now, let me give you an example: the great Western art form, probably something you may have seen a few times. Sounds like this: there's a person. Oh, person is sad. Oh, they spend money. Woo, they become happy. Oh, it's called a commercial. Now, have you have you ever seen one of those before? Yeah, I've seen I've seen a lot of them. Well, that message is hammered into our brain over and over and over again. The message is happiness is out there. I'm gonna be happy when I achieve something, when I buy a product, when I get this, I'll be happy. Er, er, er. Happiness is in here. It's not out there. It's not out there, it's in here. And we keep looking for happiness. When I go on vacation, I'm going to be happy. When my cell phone doesn't ring, I'll be happy. We keep looking for happiness out there, but happiness isn't out there. Happiness is from the inside. So, And the other thing is, it is hard to change inertia because we just don't have to think. To break the pattern of inertia, you have to stop and breathe and think, you know, what am I doing here? And it's very hard. Let me give you an example from my book, Triggers. Three of the smartest people I meet I've ever met and I coach are all medical doctors. So one is Dr. Jim Kim. Now, Dr. Jim Kim has a simultaneous MD and PhD with honors from Harvard in anthropology in five years. Mm -hmm. I put that in context. A normal human to get a PhD in anthropology from Harvard takes eight years. Now, he got one with honors in five years and got a medical degree at the same time. Uh, Dr. Dr. Raj Shah is the head of the USA, and he went on to be president of World Bank. Dr. Raj Shah is head of the... USAID, when he's 30, 70, reports to Hillary Clinton. And then uh, Dr. John Noseworthy, he's the head of the Mayo Clinic. So, the yeah, all smart guy, all medical doctors. Mm-hmm. All three ask the same question. On a typical day, how would you score on the answer to this question? One to 10, did I do my best to be happy? All three had the same answer. Never dawned on me to try to be happy. Because they don't
0: see it as a discipline.
1: They never thought of it. Why? They're too busy achieving things. Now, they're all medical doctors, it says, did it dawn on you you're going to die? Did they cover that <laughs> yeah. in medical school? They covered death? Oh, yeah. I said, do you think it's a stupid question? They said, no, it's a great question. I just forgot to ask. How do
0: you help them start asking that? What are some practices around that, that that you encourage them to think about happiness
1: in a different way? One of them is daily questions. Every day you evaluate yourself on many questions. One of the ones mm-hmm. is that I do my best to be happy every day. Shockingly. Most of us forget to be happy. What are the other questions you're asking yourself
0: every day? Because that's one of the chapters in the book that I thought was really powerful about that review.
1: Well, you know, the daily question process takes three to four minutes a day, all your listeners. It's going to help you get better at almost anything and cost nothing. People are skeptical. Three to four minutes a day, help me get better at anything, cost Uh nothing. Sounds ridiculous. Too good to be true. Half the people start doing this, quit in two weeks. They don't quit because it does not work. They quit because it does work. See, this is easy to understand. It's hard to do. Now, I've been doing this 25 years. I pay somebody many times, but now I have a friend that does it. Every day I get a call. 25 years, almost every day. Why? Somebody said, why do you have somebody call you every day? Don't you know the theory about how to change behavior? I wrote the theory. (laughs) That's why I have someone call me every day. My name is Marshall Goldsmith. I got ranked number one coach and leadership thinker in the whole world. I have someone call me every day. Why? I'm too cowardly to do any of the things I teach by myself. I'm too undisciplined to do any things I teach by myself, and I need help. And you know what? And it's okay. We all need help. Get over Dude. that macho nonsense. How does it work? Just get out of a spreadsheet, write down questions. Yeah. Every question is answered with a yes or no or number. And then every day you fill it out, one Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and you get a report card at the end of the week. I will warn your listeners in advance. The report card at the end of the week might not be quite as beautiful. Is that corporate values plaque you see stuck up on a wall?
0: I think one of the things that I really like about that process is that I think people struggle with comparison, especially online, because they don't have a scorecard. And their brain wants to know how they're doing. And if you won't answer that, it goes, fine, I'll go look at other people to figure out how we're doing. And that, that makes you feel terrible.
1: Yeah, I never thought of that. You know what? I actually am going to start using that. And the first four or five times I use it, I might actually give you credit for it. After after that, I'm sure I'll think it was my idea.
0: Exactly. I'm just so fascinated because a lot of the things you're talking about feel counterintuitive, but obvious on the back end. So when you sit down with a powerful leader and you've talked about this and what got you here won't get you there, which is one of my top 10 favorite nonfiction books of all time. Just so instructive. Somebody successful has a hard time changing because I've got all the proof that I don't need to change. And then you come in and go, no. Leadership strength isn't saying you don't need help. It's admitting you need more help than you've ever needed before. And as you get to new levels, you're going to need more help. When you deal with somebody, especially in the initial conversations, how are you getting them to see the value of admitting, I'm vulnerable, I
1: have weaknesses, I need help? Well, everybody I work with gets confidential feedback. By the way, everyone I work with, they don't have any votes on what they do. You know, I, I don't get paid if they don't get better. So I, you know, I have zero tolerance for noncompliance. I say, if I work with you, you will do the following. You will get confidential feedback. You will apologize for your sins. You will talk to people about what you learn, You will follow up on a regular basis. That you, and you will get measured. And if somebody says, I don't want to do that, what do I say? Well, thank you for sharing. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> That's the end of the
0: conversation.
1: (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not judging them. I don't care what you do. Nobody's starving here. You're a successful person. Uh, Bye-bye. But I won't waste my time. Now, let's be perfectly fair. I got a few little bonus cards most of the coaches don't have. Little secret bonus cards. Let's see. Let's imagine you're the future CEO and companies ask me to coach you. And I say, I will work with you if you do all this stuff. And if you don't, I won't work with you. You could say no," then I got to go back to the board and say, "You know, Mr. And Ms. Board member, I, I can't help this guy. I'm sorry, I can't help him Now, I have helped these fifty seventy five other spectacular people talk about how wonderful I am. I helped them, but I just can't help him. He needs a better coach." Well, somebody's going to lose an end transaction. It's not going to be me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, it's not you. The board's going to call. They're not going to call him and go, "Hey, great decision!" You know, refusing to change. That's a good sign for the board. Yeah, the board is probably. It's it's only happened
1: once in my life. One time, one woman actually did that. You know, I'm going okay, and of course, oh. six months later, out. You know, <laughs> it's
0: not. It's not a good. It's not a good look. It's not a good look where they say we believe in you so much we brought Marshall in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you interpret it that way, you see it as, you just brought, you're helping me. You slingshotted me deeper into this role. Like, let's go. It, of course. I'm not there to hurt anybody. No, you're you're there to help. One of the things that I really liked in the book, um, you mentioned in identifying your motivation, be sure to grade it on its long-term sustainability. Right. One of the things that I teach is what I call a mo- motivation portfolio. Like people sometimes think... I'll find one perfect form of motivation, a soulmate, and that'll be the one that carries me. And I always say, no, you need five, 10, 20. So when the first 10 don't show up, you have some backup motivation. How do you help people assess a motivation that will be sustainable over a long-term change?
1: Well, I did a research study called the Leadership Is a Contact Sport. somebody wants a study, send me an email, marshall at marshallgoldsmith.com. Leadership is a Contact Sport. 86,000 people in this research study. Now, number one, nobody gets better because they listen to a speech or get a coach or read a book. They have to work. That's it. So if you look at our research, people that get feedback, talk to people, follow up over and over, over time, get better. People that learn stuff but don't do anything, shockingly, don't. Now, I have good news, though. They don't get worse. They just stay the same. <laughs> they stay in the middle. <laughs> they don't get worse. They just stay like they were. Was well, you know – you've got to work. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger had a good saying, nobody got muscles by watching me lift the weights. Well, you know, they got to lift the weights. And what I tell my clients is, look, you're not getting better because of me. You're better because of you. Now you want to work, you're going to get better. You don't want to work, I don't care, but you're not going to get better. And I think we know
0: that on so many levels that, you know, if I watch less TV and read more books, or if I exercise more yeah. and and eat less fatty foods, What do you think holds us back from that simple information that we know in our head, but when it comes to the hands, we have a hard time doing?
1: Well, number one, and I'm going to talk about this from two angles, but delayed gratification. Delayed gratification is hard for most people. Here's why. We think of the future versions of ourselves as different people. In many ways, they are different people. And when you delay gratification, you're basically taking something from yourself and giving it to this other person who, May or may not be grateful, may or may not make good use of it, you know, and sometimes it doesn't work. So, you know, delayed gratification can be hard. Now, in the book, I talk about this. My clients often have the opposite problem. All they do is delayed gratification, they have the alternative problem. So, if you look at the book, three things I talk about are aspiration, that's this bigger purpose. Why am I here? Then our uh, ambition, which is our goal achievement, and that has a finite timeline. And then finally, our actions, our day-to-day activities. Most human beings are stuck in the action phase. And you're really trying to help people in a lot of ways get from that action phase to the ambition phase where they're achieving goals. My clients, they're 99.99 on goal achievement already. People I coach now, a lot of them don't need help in achieving goals. That's all they do is achieve goals. They're, They're achievement addicts. And one of the things I teach is you never become attached to the results of your achievement. You never become attached to the results of your achievement. It's a fool's game for two reasons. One, you don't control all the results. Mm -hmm. And two, what happens after you achieve the results? You just have to do more. It's kind of a never-ending drama, and you never get there. So, what I teach a lot of my clients is you need to have all three of these aligned. So, number one, I do have a higher purpose. Number two, I am trying to achieve, yet my achievement produces meaning in life. And then number three, I'm enjoying it. Because let's say, let's say you have a higher purpose and you achieve a lot, but you don't have a good time. You get to die anyway.
0: (laughs) If that's happening.
1: That's happening. You're gonna die anyway. And now you had a crappy life. Well, all right, you achieved a lot, but you still had a crappy life. One of the guys said uh, in our group is called Safi Sophie Bakal. Safi is a brilliant guy. He, uh, he's worth tens of millions of dollars. has a PhD in physics from, MIT, uh, from Stanford. Got an IQ of a zillion. He wrote the book, uh, Loon Shots. He's co-CEO. He's been advisor to presidents, blah, 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 blah. He mm-hmm. said he finally realized that, and he talks like a scientist. He said he finally realized that he always thought happiness was a dependent variable based on achievement. Then he realized happiness and achievement are independent variables. You can be happy and achieve nothing. you can be happy and achieve a lot. you can be miserable and achieve nothing and be miserable and achieve a lot. And he said he finally realized that he used to think that his happiness and value as a person was based on achievement. Well, you know what? I told him, if you haven't achieved enough to make it by now, to declare victory, exactly what do you have to achieve? You know, you know, you want 12 PhDs from Stanford and, you know, worth another hundred million bucks and, you know, coach three presidents, you know, well, what you got to do. But at a certain point with most of the people I coach, it becomes ridiculous they've achieved so much. And I'm going to say, okay, why? Number one, why are you doing this? And then number two, mm-hmm. are you enjoying it? I felt like
0: the story you told of the friend who won their the award at school and they never got to see it really. It was just their whole schooling career was about, I'm going right. to get on that wall it made me remember the first book I released. And I thought that like the world, the crust of the earth would shake when I released it. And I remember driving down the highway on 400 um, in Atlanta and looking at other cars and realizing, like, that guy has no idea. This other guy has no idea. Like the (laughs) feeling I thought would happen was very different. Like there was a momentary, but I had attached a lot of my identity to that thing and the thing didn't perform. And I thought, okay, I have to have a different aspiration for why I'm writing books versus this is going to cross something off my identity
1: list. No, that's right. And, you know, there is one type of book that always has the same ending, and they lived happily ever after. And that would be called a fairy tale. Yeah. That's not the real world. In the real world, you got to constantly start over in life. That's just the way life works. The other thing, one of the, my favorite chapters in the book is one about the marshmallow test. Yeah, you know, the marshmallow test is very famous. You have this kid, and you give Mm -hmm. them a marshmallow. If they eat one, they get one. But if they wait, aha, two. Now, allegedly, they've done these longitudinal studies, and the kids that eat one all become drug addicts, and the kids (laughs) that eat, all have PhDs from Harvard. You know, it seemed a little exaggerated, but the basic point is pretty hard to argue with. Basically, people who delayed gratification achieve more, which is, nobody's arguing with that one. On the other Mm -hmm. hand, here's what they did not do in the research. They didn't take the kid that got two marshmallows and say, hey, kid, let's wait. Three. Let's wait a little bit more. Four. Wait longer. 10, 20, 100. Yeah. And where does the story end? An old man waiting to die in a room surrounded by uneaten marshmallows.
0: Yeah, that he can no longer eat because the su- he can't handle the sugar.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's not <laughs> but, you know, the other thing is a good story. Is the what about Jack Welch? My friend is a friend of Jack Welch. He was his book agent. So Jack Welch almost dies. Well, Jack Welch, the head of GE, you know, very oh, family, yeah. He almost dies. He has a troubled bypass. So my friend says, Jack, what'd you learn about life? You know he said, Why am I drinking the cheap wine every night? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a that's such a good that's such a good response to that.
1: Jack Welch has this incredible wine cellar filled with a fancy wine. And he's you ready for this? He's letting it appreciate in value. And he's going, I'm insane. I'm Jack Welch. Yeah. I'm real. Yeah. What, what am I waiting for? What am I like, you, know, you know you made one commitment after almost dying? No more cheap wine for
0: me. That's such a great, that's such a great that's such a surprising commitment, too. I think that one of the things I feel in common with you um is that you wrote, I loved my work. And this was around aspiration to a degree. I loved my work, work days were fun. Days off left me bored. I didn't need the release valve of vacation, hobbies and weekend rounds of golf. That resonated with me because I feel the same way. I love what I do. I'm not trying to escape it. Like I I feel so grateful, so fortunate. How did you make peace with the idea of of not thinking, "Oh, I need more hobbies. I need to get into woodworking or I need to, you know, be a gardener like" I'm working so much. I need to have something on the outside of that. How did you come to that of like, no, I love this. This is play for me. Because I think sometimes we bucket our lives and we, we can't
1: admit that. Well, the first thing, I just want to reinforce one thing you just said. Neither you nor I need to be on this call. Now, do you know what we could be doing instead of being on this call? We could be playing crappy golf with old men at the country club. While yeah. eating chicken salad sandwiches and discussing gallbladder surgery. We, yeah. we, we could be doing that. But yeah, that was an option. It was a choice. I'd rather do this. So it's more fun for me. So I, I think that the thing is, again, back to looking for happiness out there. You know, I'll be happy when I don't have to work. Well, retirees are not that much happier than anybody no. else, right? Well, they don't have to work. All of a sudden, what are you? Get? Some ecstasy because you don't have to work. The key is finding happiness in what you do when you do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah so if you love what you do i mean that's it here's a higher aspect. and also you're helping somebody like you and your work i me and my work hopefully we're helping people hopefully this interaction will help somebody i mean if it's not why are we doing it
0: well yeah i i think that's the best thing and and we and what's fun is it's a mustard seed so you record an episode and you don't know that somebody in italy needed to know this about aspiration or identity and it you know with the world we have it gets to ricochet around the planet, which is super fun to me. And you get to see life change and you've got 30 years of it. I mean, you've sat on the front row of life change to see CEOs lead better, organizations, you know, the EA is served by the CEO. I mean, there's so many things that it trickles down to. I just think that's really fun. And I loved hearing you say that because I felt like it gave me permission to to feel that too. Because there's, the world teaches the opposite of often you have to, you know, escape from the job, but I, I love it. I love what I do. I would do it more hours if I could.
1: I, I'm I'm on the same page as you. Basically, look, I was trying to help people have a little better life. That's a good thing. I enjoy what I'm doing. That's a good thing. i you know, I've achieved a little bit in my life, you know. Mm-hmm. I I sold three million books, so that was something, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, that that was very much something. The other thing that I felt encouraged by, which is funnier, is that you own 50 green polo shirts and 27 identical khaki pants. And the reason I like that was that I wear a black sweater and a black, then I changed to a black t-shirt when it's hot. Because that's, I don't want, I don't want to make decisions about that. I'm not into fashion. It's not where I express myself. What are some other places where you call that agency of no choice, which I love that phrase or choice avoidance. Where are some other places in your life that you go, here's how I pre- prevent this decision fatigue by doing
1: certain things certain ways? Every morning I wake up, I have one cup of coffee with this swirly whipped cream stuff, and I have a little bar, and I eat that every day. Same thing. every day.
0: Traveling or not traveling, the bar
1: comes with you. Yeah, every day, same thing. Yeah, and so it's just a sort of a pattern. Now – the thing is, decisions produce tired. Decisions make you tired. Yeah. Decision-making is hard. There's a good book called The Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz. And in the book, you talk about choice. We think of choice as good. Choice is not inherently good. If you have 30 choices of blue jeans, no matter what you pick, you're going to experience regret mm-hmm. because one of them was a different color, fit better, something, right? You're not going to get the perfect jeans. Where if you have one choice, you just wear the one choice. You're happy. Well, I wear the same clothes all the time. Two women from Bell South visited my home and they didn't know I'm behind them. And they're walking by my house. And they one woman looking at the closet and she goes, Oh, thank God. I thought he only owned one pair of black pants.
0: It's <laughs> so great. Like you're and you you travel so much, you'd have to be washing them on the road. You'd be in a Hilton somewhere trying to get
1: them. That's so funny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean the other thing, I don't like to wear a coat and tie anyway. So now I don't have to, right? Mm-hmm. Option a, a, option a, I wear a green shirt and khaki pants, or option B, if you don't want it, fine, I'll work somewhere else. That's
0: <laughs> so great, so great. How in your career, because you mentioned it's been 30 years now, there's been a lot of success, a lot of books, a lot of coaching.
1: Uh, now, 30, 30 would make me a little young. It's closer to 40? 45. 45, all
0: right. I was, beat. I was off my math. Um, how did you avoid the temptation to move away from what you might call your one-trick genius? So the thing you were really good at, because it reminded me of this quote from Bill Watterson, the creator of Calvin and Hobbes. He said, people ask him all the time, why didn't you do more licensing, more posters, more mugs, more stuffed animals? And he said, as a practical matter, licensing requires a staff of assistants to do the work. The cartoonist must become a factory foreman delegating responsibilities and overseeing productions of things he doesn't create. Some cartoonists don't mind this, but I went into cartooning to draw cartoons, not to run a cartoon empire. If I were to undermine my own characters like this, I would have taken the rare privilege of being paid to express my own ideas and given it up to be an ordinary salesman and a hired illustrator. So for you, because I'm sure there were a lot of people that would say, Marshall, this is genius. You need to have a 500 person company and you need to do this. You need to scale it this way. But I feel like you've been really deliberate to stay true to the craft of what you do with a lot of personal excellence on it, how did you avoid that temptation to change it into something it wasn't?
1: Well, I don't mind scaling things. I just don't want to manage things. So that Mm -hmm. description you gave was me as well. I Mm -hmm. mean, I would like to manage things. To be honest, I have only two things that keep me from being a great manager. You know what they are? One, I have no ability. But two, I have less motivation. So I have no ability and less motivation. I don't like to manage things. Yeah, yeah, I don't manage anything. On the other hand, I think I'm good at scaling. Now, let, let me give an example. One thing that it talks about in the book is the 100 Coach Program. You should join our program. I should adopt you. You'd be a wonderful adopted I scholar. am in. As soon as I read it, I was like, I, I live in Nashville. Let's go. We well, got. And the new president of Belmont is one of my adopted kids. So I've got some fine adopted. Uh, oh, fun. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so I go to this program called Design the Life You Love. And woman said, who are your heroes? My heroes are kind of generous people. who are great teachers. She said, you should be like them. Well, I said, okay. I decided I'm going to adopt 15 people, teach them all I know for free. And the only price is when they get old, they have to do the same thing. So I make a little selfie video and put it on LinkedIn. I'm thinking 100 people would apply. I'm a nice old man stumbling around through life and <laughs> laughing at my jokes. And they get old, do the same thing, cycle of life. But I was wrong. Over 18,000 people applied to be adopted. That's wild. Now I've adopted 370 people. And it's called 100 Coaches. And we have we have rules though. I must tell you the rules. Very mm-hmm. strict. One is but, no money. No money. Two is no guilt. And three is no expectation. In other words, you do whatever you want. You ask people to help you and they try to help you. If they help you, say thank you. And if they don't help you, say thank you anyway. You just say thank you, and there's no expectation of payback. The only expectation is you help somebody else. And you just pay you pay it forward. Pay it forward. That's it. And to me, that is scaling. I, I think I do a lot of scaling. Well, hey, three million people read the books. That's scaling. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's you scaled an idea from an office into three million different copies in dozens and dozens of languages.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it. And all these people read the books, and they've got these thousands of people use my coaching process. The thing is, I just don't charge people for it. I just give everything away.
0: Does that allow you to keep the ideas fresh too? Because sometimes I feel like when we hoard ideas, we don't have room for new ones.
1: Well, let me tell you what I like about it. I tell people all my material you may copy, share, download, modify, change any way you want. Put your name on it. I don't care. I don't care. I don't want to be dead anyway. What does it matter to me? Just you know, if it helps somebody, knock yourself out. What am I saving it up for?
0: I love that. I love that. There's there's a show called Alone, where they send people out into the wilderness and they have to survive by themselves and film themselves. And there was an episode where a guy got, um, they removed him because his body weight had dropped so uh, dramatically. And he had 24 smoked fish that he had caught that he was saving for someday. And they pulled him because his body was eating itself. And he said, no, but I've got enough food. And they said, but you're not eating it. You were saving it for a day that never came. And I think you, it's easy to do that with ideas. It's easy to do that with the things we have. Right. I, I really appreciate your approach to that. I thought it was fascinating um how many things you track, how many little things. I have a what I call an action tracker that I draw every month where I, I check off things I'm tracking. It could be things like walking up the stairs. I caught myself running up the stairs a bunch and thought, I'm gonna fall. This is this is anxiety. I just want to calmly walk upstairs. It's silly. How much water I drink? You know, encouraging one person a day, once a day, I text somebody out of the blue and say something kind, and they never say this was the wrong day to say that. They always say, "I needed this today." You had no idea. You mentioned that you tracked being nice to your wife. What are some other things that you would say over the years? I've tracked. These are some little things I've tracked.
1: Well, how many steps I take every day? How much do you weigh? Here's a good, a couple good ones for people. One for me is. How many times did I try to prove I was right when it was not worth it? <laughs> I, I don't see too many zeros on my scorecard. Kind of hard for that old professor not to be right all the time. Or how many angry or destructive comments did you make about other people? Well, we don't want other people stabbing us in the back. Why are we stabbing them in the back? So, you know, just a lot of, quote, little things, but those little things make up life. Now, let me give you a good one for you. You're kind of a helping guy like me. Uh, how many times did I try to help people with my professional expertise that had no desire to be helped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I, uh, one of the things I wrote for myself was the best time to give somebody advice is when they've said, can you give me some advice? And every other time is squirrely. Um, and so <laughs> for me, I, that helps because if somebody makes eye contact with me, I'm like, I should probably help them
1: with something. Of course, of course. <laughs> Great is the need of the student to learn far greater is the need of the teacher to teach.
0: Yeah, that I have, I have that thing you just described, uh, very, very much so. I have to tell you, the surfing story was powerful. In the book, the surfing story about you as a young man and making an action decision versus an aspiration decision. Can you tell us a little about that, you know, paint that picture for us?
1: Well, I've done many dumb things in life. This one way up there at the top of dumbness, right? So right. I'm, 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 I'm on some boogie board. I'm 27. I don't know anything about surfing. I'm from Kentucky. You know, I was brought up surfing, yeah. right? And, you know, the day wears on, we start getting more and more macho. You know, and I do something cute, and, and then my buddies are there, and we're, in, you can do it, you know, go for that big one. So, you know, sure enough, here comes a nine-foot wave. I'm like an idiot. So I decided I'm going to ride this wave. I go straight up and then straight down, broke my neck in two places. I mean, thank God I'm not totally paralyzed, which, by the way, many people were that summer in the same beach paralyzed. I wasn't. I just got lucky as all. And then I analyzed that back to these three things, our action, our ambition, and our aspiration. Well, you know, that had nothing to do with my aspiration as a human being. I'm not going to be some kind of surfer and some good is going to come out of this. Number two, there's no achievement in surfing. I'm not going to be a great surfer. What the heck am I doing? Well, I got lost in adrenaline, lost in the moment, you know, seeking that thrill. And, you know, it almost killed me.
0: I think the thing that was interesting to me was how simply you could see, okay, the action was there, but the other two things didn't fit. And it creates this framework, this really powerful, really simple framework. That I think anybody can apply. For me, I look at like ultra running. I have friends that are like, let's go, let's go run 100 miles in the woods. And occasionally I'm tempted by that, but it's not my aspiration. I'm not sponsored. I'm, I know that it would age my knees 10 years. You know, all these different things that don't meet up other than my ability to tell somebody I did it, which is, is not a long term thing I'm trying to live by, the ability to tell somebody a story no. about something I didn't enjoy.
1: Do you know how much longer marathoners live than the average person? And that is roughly the amount of time they spend running the marathons. <laughs> That's it. Which That's means, it. You know, if you want to run marathons and you enjoy it, go ahead. But don't sit there and do it to be a martyr and think you're, li- you're going to live longer because it doesn't make any difference.
0: Doesn't change it. Doesn't change it. No. One of the things you talk about, I feel like, is that you don't have to change a thousand things. It's often a handful of things. Um, and what got you here won't get you there. You talk about being nice to somebody, being kind to a coworker. Right. I think we feel like we have this great pressure to change everything. The 180 degree, you know, turnaround. Right. Why does changing a few small things often have a huge impact?
1: Well, it has a huge small impact because the quote small things are illustrative of the big things. Uh let's say a big thing is I want to create an open environment. A big thing is I want people to tell the truth. I don't want to kill the messenger. That sounds big. Now let me give you a small thing. Yeah, you know, you're you're driving your car, and the person next to you says, Look out, there's a red light up ahead. Okay, do you say thank you? Or do you say, What do you mean there's a red light? Do you think I can see? Well, The big thing is you wanna encourage people to tell the truth. The small thing is you scream at your wife when she corrects your driving. I taught that at Dartmouth, one guy raised his hand. He said, I got an embarrassing story to tell you. My wife always corrected my driving. I said, I'm sick of you correcting my driving. Never do that again. I know how to drive a car. He said, I'm so embarrassed. Two weeks ago, I'm driving a car, run right through a red light and plowed into two cars. And I said, thank goodness no one was hurt. First thing he does, looks at his wife goes, why didn't you say anything? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He immediately put it back on her. Well, yeah, well, excuse me, fool. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My version of that is I think about being a good father to my daughters, and I realized one of the things I can measure is being grumpy. Like, was I a grumpy dad today? Yeah. Was I short in in my responses? Because measuring, was I a good father? Like, that's so big and fuzzy, and I can't really track that. But
1: I can track, was I grumpy today? I measured with my kids. I asked my kids how can I be a better dad? So my mm-hmm. daughter's eleven, my son's nine. My, my my daughter says, you know, you travel a lot, that's not what bothers me. What bothers me is you act when you come home? You talk on the phone, you watch sports, you don't spend much time with me. Mm-hmm. And she said, one time it was Saturday and we'll go to a party at my friend's house and mom didn't let me go. I had to stay home and spend time with you. And then she said, You spend no time with me. That was not right. What can I say? I thank you. Daddy must do better. I started measuring how many days I could spend four hours with my family. 1991, 92 days. 1992, 110. 1993, 131. 1994, 135. I made more money the year I spent 135 days, four hours with my family, than the year I spent 20 days. What did I learn? San Diego Chargers? They don't care about me. yes <laughs> January 1, 1995. Now they're both teenagers. Yeah. The kids, look, 135 days. What goal this year? How about 150? They both go, no, 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 no. Daddy reduction time. That's
0: so funny. They said, okay, dad, we've overcorrected. We need to... You've overachieved.
1: You've overachieved,
0: yeah. Yeah, dial it, dial it back
1: a yeah, little. My, my son said, let's go for 50. I think 50 is a good target. <laughs> 50
0: is a good, yeah, let's see he's into 50 pops. Were you always motivated to track things like that? Was it a process you learned over time? Because again, so much of this resonates with me. And I think there's a lot of people that listen to a podcast called All It Takes is a Goal who are curious about, you being able to rattle off days in 1991 and, and the things you talk about.
1: Did you grow up that way or did you grow into it? My undergraduate degree is in uh, is in mathematical economics. So I've always so, sort of liked that. You know, I've yeah. got 800 on the SAT Mass Achievement Test. So, you know, I've always been very logical and, you know, I, I like to measure things. And to me, if you don't measure it, number one, I, you know, you did any good. Mm. You don't have any measure. And the measure doesn't have to be an objective measure. It could be a subjective measure. That's fine. At least you're doing something though. You're doing something every day to get some ballpark of, am I doing this? And if you don't measure it, it's so easy just to be delusional.
0: To have no connection to reality. I, I sometimes say goals are optimistic lies um, that that we tell that if they're not connected to your calendar, if you're not connected to, because when somebody says, I want to write a book and I say, well, how much free time do you have in a week? And they say, I have no idea. Then there's. The book's not going to happen because books are mathematically fairly simple. I've got a chart. You can probably see it on the wall right there. That's my next book. I think it will take me 500 to 1,000 hours to write that book. And so I'm tracking that. Wow, okay, I did 22 hours this week. What did I accomplish? And I, I didn't know it takes me 100 hours just to like the idea. It took me seven books to realize the first 100 hours. I'm like, this thing is terrible. What am I doing? And by the time I hit 150, I'm able to, I'm able to kind of settle into it. I'm curious, what's your creative process like now? Are you an idea guy where you've got a notebook with you and somebody says something that you think is fascinating and you're writing it down? Are you typing it into an app? What's the the Marshall Goldsmith approach to, to creativity?
1: I am good at ideas. I mean, I have enough ideas I could do five books right now. Mm-hmm. You know, Now, the, I'm not really that good as a writer. So I'm going to tell you the secret to writing success. I've done three New York Times bestsellers. Mm-hmm. I didn't write any of them. My friend Mark Ryder writes the books, right? He's better mm-hmm. than me. I talk, he writes, I talk, he writes. He's my agent as well. Oh, perfect. He's my agent and co-author. So our book, there in Life, is our fourth book together. I didn't write that book. He wrote it. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I can say as without bragging, that book is incredibly well-written. Yeah, it, I love it. I, I didn't write it. I couldn't have written that book. You know, my ideas, though, they're my ideas, and he writes, and he's my agent. And we split everything fifty-fifty. Now somebody said, gee, that's a lot of money to give your friend for doing that work. Well, let me put this in context. Before I met him, my biggest advance for a book was twenty thousand dollars. After I had him, I did it. what got you here, What you there? That was five fifty. The next one six fifty. The next one million, the next one million too. You know, I learned half of one point two million is more than all of twenty thousand.
0: <laughs> so good. That's that's why you have that degree in math. I mean, that's that kind of challenging math, you're
1: able to... Can't put anything by me. I broke that code. Yeah. <laughs> so-, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so good. That That's such a funny tweet to think about that. Oh, I, I love that. How do you spend your time these days? Are you, you're sitting in front of a wall of books. You're clearly a reader. You're clearly deliberate about your time. Walk us through like an not that there's ever an average week. I don't think that's ever true. But is it you're you're on the road a bunch still? You're writing all the time. You're gathering ideas. You're you're in your coach's community.
1: How are you spending your time? I I think you pretty much said it. I mean, part of my time is spent coaching, and I still do coaching. I, I you know I coach. I think eight people now, mm-hmm. and you know so. And then a large part of my time is just spent with the community. Because, you know, these people are like my friends and we talk. I have regular meetings every week with a group we call the LPR group every week we meet. And so a lot of my time is spent with them. Then I, I'm I'm always coming up with ideas. So I'm not really a writer. I'm just more of an idea guy. I come up with ideas for books. So I, I like that. And then and then speaking, I enjoy that. Although there's not as much as there was at least in person speaking. You know, mm-hmm. because of COVID. After that it kind of stopped. And I, I still travel around. My next trip I'm going is from, let's see if I can remember, Nashville to Atlanta, to someplace out in the country, back to Atlanta. Then I'm going to um Dubai. Then I'm going to uh and then I'm going over to Abu Dhabi, Hyderabad, Bangalore, Mumbai. Then I'm going to, I think, Riyadh and Istanbul, and then back. Wow. That's a, That's a lot of green shirts. A lot of lot of miles. And I have a new home. So I, my main home is here in Nashville. By the way, I love it here in Nashville. So I'm a fan of Nashville. We're so glad to have you. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I love it here in Nashville. My main home is here. Second home is in New York City. And then now I have home number three. I just uh, got a home for the next year in Dubai. Oh, that's awesome. Did you spend a lot of time in Dubai? I do. I spent a lot of time in the region. So gotcha. I'm coaching one of the ministers at UAE, one of the ministers in Saudi I'm coaching CEO in Dubai. I'm coaching a couple of rich people there. So, yes, yeah, I, I, I like Dubai. Have you been there before? I haven't. I had an event there, but it got um, canceled with COVID. Well, I, I, I have a home in a small building called the Burj Khalifa. So very small, small building. It's the tallest building in the world. It's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Yes, yeah, humble, humble building. Very, very small. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah. I've, got, I've got a yeah. spectacular. Place. My my friend Mark Thompson and I, we we split the home in New York and the home in Dubai. So my home in Dubai is 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 kind of over the top. It's kind of cool. So I've got a nice home there, the Burj Khalifa, three bedrooms, spectacular view. So it's
0: cool. Oh, that's perfect. And that leads me to speaking of international. I've only got a few more questions, but one I'd love to, to hear you talk about is feed forward. And you actually did that model, the feed forward model, in uh, Moscow yeah. with a, an arena of 50,000 people. I love this concept. Can you explain
1: to the listeners what you mean by feed forward? Well, feed forward, let's pretend I'm teaching the class in Moscow. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I get up in front of her. I say, now we're going to practice something called feed forward. Now, I'd say, I'd say look around the room. I say, are there some smart people in this room? I say, yeah, well, goal number one is learn from these smart people. Would you like to learn from these people? Yeah, then look around the room. Are there nice people here? Would you like to help these nice people? Or are you going to be learning from these smart people or helping these nice people? Both good. Now, what are the rules and feed forward? Rule number one no feedback about the past. We spend too much time in our lives yammering about the past. I would say, have you ever been impressed with your wife, husband, or partner's? near photographic memory of your previous sins, which have been documented and will be shared with us in a repetitive way. So I said, no yeah. talking about the past, only mm-hmm. ideas for the future. And then rule two, when people give you ideas, you can't judge or critique. All you can say is thank you. If they give you a great idea, you say thank you. If give you have a stupid idea, you say thank you. Buddha said, only do what I teach if it works for you. If doesn't works for you, it's so okay, just don't do it. Well, you ask mm-hmm. for ideas, you got nothing to lose. They give you ideas and you say thank you. And And then at the end of the exercise, they run around, talk to people. You can imagine the chaos, and it's mostly only 20% even spoke English, so it's all done in Russian. Then at the end, I say, give me one word to describe this exercise. They invariably say positive, useful, helpful, or fun. What's the last word you think to describe any feedback activity? Fun. I say, why is it fun? It's focused on the future, what you can do, not what you can't do, nobody's critiquing. People love it. Well, and it
0: changes the model completely. And I love that it opens up conversations with leaders. I I, I always tell people, if if you as a leader ask for feedback and the first thing they give you is compliments, they don't have psychological safety. If you say, hey, I need some feedback, and they say, you have beautiful hair. Like you could really, you you couldn't get a comb through that thick hair. You're a great leader. They don't feel like they can tell you the truth. And they're going to tell somebody the truth. It's just not going to, it's not going to be you. I love that it's the reverse of most feedback models. I thought it was so helpful, Marshall. Um, I'm so, I was so encouraged to read that in the book. Two last questions. What four books would you put on your Mount Rushmore? Like nonfiction, I ask this question to everybody that comes on nonfiction kind of goal related books or executive leadership related books. What are the books you'd put on your Mount
1: Rushmore? The first one is called, um, old path, white clouds by Tik Tok, old path, white clouds. I love that book. It's a Buddhist book. It's a, it reads like almost children's fairy tales. just a wonderful book. Then another book I would call, is called "Hesselbein on Leadership." It's done by my friend Francis Hesselbein. And uh, just a, she's just a total inspirational human being, and I love her. She's 106 years old now. Another one is "American Icon." that's about my friend Alan Mulally and how, you know, he turned around four, just hit. another guy's a good friend of mine, just a hero in mine my mind. And then the, the other one is this one, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. You have to you have to read that book.
0: I love that book. I, I recommend that book constantly. And again, I'm paying people in meetings when I'm negative because I told them, we call it our governor payment. Whenever I put a governor on what we're capable of, like putting a, a governor on a motor, they can call me out. And it took a meeting or two for people to feel comfortable. But now you almost feel like they're waiting on the edge of their seat because they'll say, what if we tried this? And if I go, uh, that won't work for us. Without investigating it, without, oh, and, and so one of our soundtracks or, you know, our mantras is curiosity beats criticism, Good. especially when we're, when we're working on an idea. And that came from you. So, Good. so grateful. Last question. Where can people find out more about you?
1: Uh, okay. To get the book, my book is available every place. So it's going to be May 3rd, uh, The Earned Life. They did give me a million dollar advance. So I think you're going to see it in most bookstores. Yeah, yeah, I hope
0: so. They're, they have incentive to get it out there. <laughs> they have incentive.
1: <laughs> when they give you a million bucks, they usually put it in the bookstores, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> going to be at an airport. It. Yeah, it'll yeah. be at the airport. So the, the book, you can get pretty much any place. Uh, also, my website, www.marshallgoldspin.com, I give everything away. Copy, share, download, duplicate. And if you live in Nashville or you live near Nashville, I go for a walk all the time and I invite everybody to come visit.
0: I'm in, I'm in. Like, Will, as soon as we stop this recording, we're going to trade information because I am 100% in.
1: I take a walk anyway, and I always enjoy going to walk with people and, you know, just walk around. And and so I always just come over and visit. So, you know, I'm my stuff's not hard to find. You go to YouTube, I've got a YouTube channel. All the videos are free. So, yeah, I just give everything away. And as I said, copy, share, download, duplicate. Now, I tell people this. Let's say I write something you mo- like most of it, but not part of it change it. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah, cross that out. Rewrite that part. Put your name on it. Change it. It doesn't bother me. I'm, what am I saving it up for?
0: I love that. I love that. It, I, for me, at the, at the point in my career where I am, I love that advice because it's really helpful to me about being generous with ideas, generous with time, generous with serving people. So that's so encouraging for me to hear that it's so tempting to think you need to build an empire in your own name versus actually help people so this is this has been so kind to hear these words from you today marshall we'll stop the recording here in just a second and then we'll trade information because i'm definitely coming on a walk but thank you so much thank you so much for joining me thank you so much for
1: inviting me it's been wonderful i look forward to getting to know you thanks marshall
0: Thank you for listening to my interview with Marshall Goldsmith today. We'll put all the links in the show notes as always. And thank you for reviewing my podcast. The reviews you write are super encouraging. As I've said over and over and over and over again, podcasts are a little weird to me because you don't get really any feedback. Like unless you take the show on the road, you don't really get a lot of interaction. It's not like a blog where people point comments or Twitter where people can be super mean to you or like a speech you can tell, okay, this is working. The crowd is enjoying this. It feels a little like being in a vacuum, but then when you write reviews, it allows me to go, oh, okay, this is something they're digging or, oh, okay, like that's the kind of episodes they like. So thank you for doing that. Please make sure you subscribe or follow or whatever it is the kids are saying these days, and please write a review. See you next week. And remember, all it takes is a goal. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the All It Takes as a Goal podcast and to get access to today's show notes and exclusive content from John Acuff, visit acuff.me slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the All It Takes as a Goal podcast.